It's Thursday, the 2nd of February. I'm Gemma Craddock, and this is Playback Daily. We haven't seen the legislation, we haven't seen the proposals, we haven't seen the, safe, the, the safeguards, we haven't seen the EU law. None of this happened in pre-legislative scrutiny where you're supposed to bring in people such as the Garda Commissioner or, or the ICCL or anybody else who has some international experience in this and have a, and have a chat about it. It's the first time anyone's ever said, uh, this is the work of the devil. Uh, <laughs> right. Gene editing is not witchcraft, um, so it's just science. I asked if you play Wordle, and I, I think said, you do. Yeah, I, I said, yeah, I play Nerdle. Uh, Nerdle. <laughs> <Wordle. laughs> Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, I do. From novels about evil tech conglomerates to debates about facial recognition technology to gene editing and de-extincting species, it was not a day for listeners with any dystopian fears, but a great one for the curious. We'll start with Ray Darcy. Uh, the phrase dead as a dodo might soon become extinct because a gene editing company wants to bring back the dodo. Uh, they want to de-extinct the dodo, uh, which was a, a flightless bird found in Mauritius. Uh, it might sound like the plot of a science fiction movie, but it's true. And on the line is Ben Lamb, co-founder and CEO of Colossal Biosciences. Uh, hello, Ben. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I, I, I'm really looking forward to our chat. Um, so is this headline grabbing or is this real? I mean, uh, it's real. I mean, we, we have a company called Colossal Biosciences based here in the United States. We previously announced the de-extinction project around the woolly mammoth and the thylacine or Tasmanian tiger. Given the iconicness of the dodo, we thought that it was only you know fitting uh, for us to start working on the dodo as, as well. Uh, and it's and I'm partnered with George Church, who's uh, arguably the father of modern day genetics and synthetic biology to do this. So, so he was the, the one of the the pioneers of the human genome. So he he is the man, really, isn't he, George Church? Yeah, he's the man. I mean, he definitely he's, he invented a lot of the the next gen read write technologies. He was one of the first to publish uh, uh, with CRISPR. You know, actually was the first to use CRISPR in uh, in mammalian cells. And he actually his lab at Harvard holds the record uh, for number of edits. And so they've actually done this in pigs and many other animals. And mm. so interestingly enough, he's actually been working on the mammoth project, uh, with a kind of a shoestring budget for about six years. And then we started the company and now fast forward, we've got 85 people. We raised $225 million in five labs around the world, uh, fully dedicated to the cause. Will you explain to people as best you can in the vernacular, how CRISPR gene editing works? Yeah, so we we talk about CRISPR, but and I think CRISPR's done a really good job of getting people excited because people have all you know people saw what Jennifer Doudna with, with got with the Nobel Prize. But essentially, we as humanity now have a suite of tools and technologies, including CRISPR, that allows us to edit the genome. So this this is things like we can actually synthesize big pieces of, of DNA and create DNA and swap it out uh, with existing DNA. We can even go change the individual letters. Uh, on those little rungs in, in kind of that twisted ladder that when you think of uh, what DNA looks like. And so from a from a tool set perspective, we can knock out pieces of the DNA, we can replace parts of the DNA, and we can even change those letters. So humanity and, and mm. you know, obviously uh, biotech companies like us now have tools and technologies that we can start to manipulate genomes um, in, a, in a myriad of different ways. So for our listeners, it's, it's like if I had in front of me two A4 pages with instructions as to what something should be. And then I came to paragraph two and I decided that the second sentence wasn't what I wanted to be. 
Uh, and I can take, take that out, out and put in a, in a new sentence. That's what you can do with genes. Yeah, you now. take it out and it would repair itself. Yes. Or and we just have that sentence. Or you can swap out the words, swap out the letters, or add a whole new paragraph. Oh, <laughs> yeah, uh, very exciting, very exciting indeed. Uh, now, now, now- so it's, it's really it, it's it's really exciting, and we've been really grateful. We're super happy to talk to you, and we've just gotten this worldwide feedback that people are really excited. Uh, about the work. And what's interesting is a lot of the technologies that we're developing also have applications to both conservation and to human health care. Mm. And so while we're focused on de-extinction, we have kind of this halo effect of giving conservationists new tools to combat species loss, as well as developing technologies, which also can help human health care. We come to that. Uh, just back to George for a moment, because George, yeah. Church, there is a connection between George Church and uh, Michael Crichton and Jurassic Park. Because everybody yesterday, when they read this, immediately said Jurassic Park. So what's the connection there? I, I actually can't go. Well, I mean, I think that Jurassic Park gave everyone the, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of the viewpoint of how we could de-extinct species, right? I think Michael Crichton in the movies, the books in the movies, got people, you know, thinking about what, what is possible. Mm. And actually did a lot of great education on uh, getting people excited about gene editing, even in the 90s and early 2000s. And what's interesting, though, about George is Michael Crichton, in his original book, Jurassic Park, uh, there's actually a DNA sequence. That sequence is actually pulled from some of George's earlier work, uh-huh. uh, which is amazing. So there is this connection, ironically, between uh, George and Michael Crichton, Okay, even though the two never met. Okay, just the, 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 the basics then. Where do you get the DNA of a dodo? Uh, so we work. So the way that Colossal works is we we're a very collaborative uh, group of people, and we have scientists that we collaborate uh, worldwide. So Beth Shapiro, who's one of the leading ancient DNA experts in the world, she's on our scientific advisory board and our lead paleogeneticist. She actually uh, worked with a series of different museums to actually get the dodo to, to get different samples from museums. They take individual pieces of bone, some actual uh, uh, soft tissue that's still in the skull and other places, and then they go through a process of actually sequencing in that. And that's when computers read that DNA and tell you what those individual letters are to your paragraph example that we can then go manipulate. Okay, so let's stick with the paragraphs then, the two A4 pages. <laughs> so, so you have that and you have the instructions that the dodo would have got, the, the dodo cells would have got way back then. They're extinct since 1662 or thereabouts. They don't know exactly when. Um, so you have those list of instructions in a computer. Where do you put those instructions then? Yeah, so you, then you so once you have those instructions, right, and you understand what the book is, you really, we don't, we don't have a living dodo, right? No. So you can't just like, clone it. So what we have to do is we have to do what's called comparative analysis, where you actually compare the genome to the closest living relative. And that's in in, in the case of the dodo, ironically, it's the Nicobar pigeon. So most people don't know this, but the dodo was actually a form of a pigeon. And if you look at a picture, if people have a picture of the Nicobar pigeon, it's beautiful. And then you look at a picture of what we think the dodo looked like, not so beautiful. Quite ugly, right? yes. So it's <laughs> really interesting. It's, yeah, it's quite, it's, yeah. I mean, I think it's cute. But, yeah, but um, unsightly. So, well, not traditionally beautiful then. Let's, let's, yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, if you, when you look at the Nicobar pigeon, it's absolutely beautiful. It's like yep. rainbow. It's like right out of, you know, like a, a fashion show, right? It's unbelievable. 
And so you then do the comparative analysis. And then what we wanted, what we want to do is we actually want to take, we, we don't need to copy and synthesize the whole genome because we can get the, the physical attributes or phenotypes just by doing that study of the two genomes. And then we just start editing the Nicobar pigeons genes, uh, genomes with dodo genes so that we're creating this proxy species using the Nicobar as our host. Right. Okay, so, so it, will it be a hybrid then of, of the Nicobar and the dodo, or will it it look like a dodo? The phenotype is is the the what we can see physical attribute. It's what yeah. we can see, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and so, so in all of our spe so in so in both the mammoth, the thylacine, and then also the dodo, we're not looking to create uh, exact clones because if they serve the ecological uh, reason why we're bringing them back as well as they have all of those core physical attributes. Like if you look at our dodo and say, oh my gosh, that's a dodo, even if it's 99.8% of dodo, it, for us, it doesn't really matter. It, it kind of hits those okay. goals. So, okay. so think of it as like a proxy for the dodo. Think of it, think of it as like the dodo 2.0. Okay. Uh, now, I know you have bioethicists. Um, uh, we, we, we know from the history of mankind, unfortunately, that when technology is developed, that initially... You know, it might be for good uh, and it might be part of scientific research. But if it can be, inevitably, it's used for wrong, for evil, for war, for, you know, whatever. Um, and, and, and people who have the money can pay for it. So how do you protect from that happening? Well, it's a great question, and we do have bioethicists, and we have an entire also conservation board that kind of helps govern how we think about these things. So we we are only focusing on species that uh, that bringing them back, you know, uh, serves a purpose, right? So we're only doing that, and then all of the tools and technologies that we develop that have an application to conservation, we open source and give to the world for free. So okay. as we make these breakthroughs, we get like so we just. Last year, we published a uh, uh, you know the genome for the Asian elephants, and, and so any of that that we do, we develop that we, we want to give to the world for free. Now, with CRISPR and any of these tools for gene editing, you know while we aren't using them in uh, different ways, you know we're not the sole user of these technologies. Lots of people can use them for a myriad of different reasons. We're focusing on de-extinction and conservation. Yeah. So even when we develop tools that have an application for human healthcare, we spin those tools out. We have another team that kind of runs with those and we stay really focused on our mission. And you know, what what you know, people are always afraid of, of some of these new tools and technologies, but even when the when the car came out, people were afraid of the car, right? And mm. when the airplane came out. So so there are all of these technologies that that you know uh, you need to be mindful and thoughtful about how you use them. But here's a really interesting conservation example. With the tools that, that we've developed, plus the ones that we've exclusively licensed, and with the incredible women and men that work at Colossal, we're working to eradicate a, a disease called EEHV in elephants. It kills 25% of elephants worldwide every single year, way more than poaching, way more than a human elephant conflict, and way more than anything else. And so I, I, I give you this example because, yes, some of these tools could be used in the wrong hands the wrong mm -hmm. way, uh, but but even with just the outside the de-extinction efforts, in the next few years, Colossal, in, in collaboration with Pauling and some of our partners, we will eradicate EEHV. And as that gets rolled out to the elephant population, it will ultimately save more elephants okay. than all of elephant conservation for all time. Uh, and then I know the human genome was a huge leap, um, but what has happened since didn't happen at the pace that people expected, simply because just because we have all the detail and it's in a computer somewhere 
the, the complexity of how genes and the information from DNA interact with each other is going to take a lot more time to understand. Oh, yeah. And synth- exactly. And yes. what's interesting is tools and technologies, even since that in the last even like four or five years has exponentially grown, right? You're starting to see all these different new applications of CRISPR and other kind of gene editing tools that I think people buckle, bucket just under CRISPR, even if it's not CRISPR. And so I think you're going to continue to see that exponential curve of innovation, very much like when the first computers came out and the internet came out. You saw that kind of massive ex- uh, acceleration curve uh, and technology innovation, we're starting to already see that. And so there were some uh, kind of like initial, you know, while, while there were initial discoveries on reading uh, the DNA, think about just the reading part of your example. It, they spent billions of dollars sequencing, you know, the human genome. You can now get sequencing for a hundred dollars. Nice. So look at that commoditization <laughs> curve yeah, yeah. and Excel. And it took years versus two or three days now. Right. Okay. And so, we are constantly sequencing genomes at Colossal. And so think about that massive curve of both speed and the accuracy of the technology and the commoditization of cost, right? And so you've gone from billions of dollars of cost to hundreds of dollars of cost, you know, in less than, you know, 10, 15 okay. years. Yeah, you get this all the time, but I'll just give you an example of what our listeners are saying. Um, this is the work of the devil, Ray. Where will it end? Uh, nature selected the dodo for extinction for a reason. Let it rest in peace. Well, I suppose so, it was man who contributed so, to the extinction of the yeah, dodo. So, yeah, well, so, that, that's, you could argue that. I, 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 go on. I hope, I hope the, it's the first time anyone's ever said uh, this is the work of the devil. Uh, <laughs> right. Gene editing is not witchcraft. Um, so it's just science, right? Yeah, it's, but you're it's right. Well, we're, 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 so, you know, we're afraid of the unknown. That's that's the human nature, isn't it? Yeah, but yeah. I mean, you need you need to like the, the point of this is the point of this is uh, you fundamentally uh, when you have new technologies, they're not evil. You know, there, to your point, though, there is applications that could be used for evil, right? Yeah. That's not us. And so you, I think that you need to have ethical and responsible use of these technologies. But we're only focusing on species where mankind had a role in it. So just so you know, the dodo did not go extinct, uh, you know, by, you know, the natural selection the God yeah. or natural selection. Humanity destroyed the dodo. We killed them on, on Mauritius. We also introduced invasive species which ate their eggs so they they only laid about one egg a year so therefore uh we eradicated them uh and forced them into extinction right and so uh, we did the same thing with the tasmanian tiger the australian government put a bounty on the tasmanian tiger and literally forced them into extinction in only a few years and so um so these are these are man-made or at least man-influenced extinction events these are not things that you know they had, you know, when people have said to us, oh, well, the, th- the thylacine or the dodo had its day. Yeah, it did. And then we ruined its day. Okay. And so ben, we tried to use technologies to, to kind of fix the past. Can I ask you, undo the what's the, the timeline on this? When would we see a dodo? Yeah, so what? So there's a 30-day gestation uh, with dodos versus with woolly mammoths and Asian elephants. There's about a 22-month. We've set a goal publicly that we want to get to our first mammoth calves by 2028. That could slip a little bit, but we're pretty confident based on where we are today. And I think given the, the difference in gestation, it's highly likely that we would see a dodo before we see a mammoth in 2028. Wow. Um, and the final word to one of our texters, our grandchildren will be cloned computer programs if this happens. It's only the start. Um, God's beauty will change into artificial robots into the matrix. Dun, dun, dun. 
Yeah. yeah, there's a lot there, right? So we're, so we're not we're not part of the singularity, no, okay. and we're not we're not working on singularity. Well, that's another that's another that's another, uh, that's another day's yeah, we're not chat with you. Computer brain yeah, interfaces. Yeah, I'd love we're to chat to you about humans. that. We've run out of time. The the singularity and futurism and 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 computers and human brain combining. I'd love to chat to you about that, Ben, because I'm sure you have great opinions on it. But we've run out of time, Ben. That that was fascinating. Thanks so much for taking time to talk to us today, Ben Lamb, co-founder and CEO of Colossal uh, Biosciences, de-extincting the dodo. Thanks, Ben. Ben Lam, co-founder and CEO of Colossal Biosciences on the Radar Sea Show. Well, if you ever wondered what Donkey Kong and Homer's Odyssey have in common, wonder no more. Joining Ryan this morning was Emmy-nominated TV and gaming producer Triana Campbell. And it turns out Ryan is a secret gamer. Look, I don't really get the games thing, um, so maybe you could tell me a little about them. And you said, tell tell them what you said. I asked if you play Wordle, because I, I think said, you do. Yeah, I, I said, yeah, I play Nerd, uh, Nerdle. <laughs> Wordle, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, I do. And Wordle is a video game, because that's all it is. It's just games that you play on electronic devices, played by a human on different platforms. So your phone, your tablet, your console, your PC... It's a video game. So I'm a gamer. You're a gamer, Ryan. You're a gamer. I can't believe it. I don't fit the the mould. See, to me, a gamer is somebody who has the chair, the headphones, and is just uh, whatever that thing is in their hands, and they're just at the screen, and they're you know, gone to another planet, like I would be with a book or some, or go, when I go to the cinema. This is true. This is what a, a lot of people think. But video games are, they're a lot more than that. And they're expanding all the time into different areas. So video games, nutshell, like the yeah. Cliff Notes, 1948 was the first pattern of a video game. And these were pretty much scientific things that people did. I think the first pattern was by the US military in relation to making a simulation of missiles in World War II. Really? And then after that, they were around for a while. They were mainly existing in laboratories. You had EXO, which is like knots and crosses. You had tennis. And then this guy called uh, Paul Bear came along and he went, hmm, television. I wonder what else I could put on that. And he was kind of like the father of video games because he made arcade games. We're talking Space Invaders, Love them Pac-Man, as a kid, yeah. All of those things. And they were really, really popular. And they brought about things like Atari, which was so massive that they actually had a plant in Ireland in 1971 where we were manufacturing games consoles and stuff for them. And from there, it went into microprocessors Mm -hmm. and color. And you had like... Uh, console wars with Nintendo and Sega and then eventually you end up in the 1990s with Sony PlayStation and then Microsoft Xbox and that is video games in a nutshell well done yeah, I feel like I was on the tour there. In, in there was a non-stop history stop. of video games so what they seem to be really uh, advanced now the graphics are extraordinary the you know people are winning Emmys for music and even acting I don't know how you act in a video game but you can explain that w- what has happened that they've become so enormous and so lucrative and so uh, smart it is the it's technology technology has evolved as we have gone on and animation and um, the processing behind video games and VR technology and AI all of those things have changed but 
it in essence, video games are still about the user experience and they're also about storytelling. Like 19, 1950s, Donkey Kong was the first time we had storytelling in a video game where you had an ape who is mistreated by his owner, so he kidnaps his girlfriend and the video game is rescuing the girl. So we've emerged from that into, you know, other games like The Last of Us and Overwatched and Fortnite and all of these things that you probably see when you see shooter games. But we've also done things like history-based games like Civ 6 is massive What's that? Civ 6 is like you play civilizations you get to go back into history and go what if really? the Nazis did X, Y and Z what if China took over this country and you play a simulation of how history would have changed oh, that sounds really if, interesting and that's really big among primary school uh, students as well what do you think of shooter games? I think the founder the original guy who created shooter games is in Ireland he has a games company in Galway Romero Games John Romero created Doom it is it's an experience for some people and some people Mm. like it but it's not just all all video games it's like there are lots of them I'm not trying to be you know fishing for some sort of you know a difficult conversation but I'm just curious as somebody who knows their games as you do are they uh, are they are they okay I mean are, are, are they encouraging a sort of virulent violence or anything like that. Do you know where I'm coming from? Yeah, I do. I do. And I think it's it's out there a lot. And I'd say, you know, it's everything in moderation. You, know, I think if you're spending a lot of time on shooter games all the time, sometimes it's nice to have a balance and do other things too. But I think games in general, we tend to see the really violent ones, but we're not seeing the really incredible ones we're also making. Like I went to this primary school in Armagh with um, their class was studying Second World War mm. and their history teacher thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give them the opportunity to build the trenches in World War II in Minecraft. So these kids went out outside of school and they were researching what weapons, how deep were the trenches, mm. how many men were in the trenches, what would they have had around them, what happens in no man's land. And they recreated all of that in this virtual world of Minecraft. And in the process, the amount of information that they got in terms of their own research was stunning. And I think that kind of stuff. In what terms a clever of teacher. Amazing. Uh, and a great connection with the chil- with the youngsters. And as you, as you uh, point out so rightly, that... In order to get to the game, they needed to do that research. And so everyone's winning intellectually everybody's and technologically. Winning. And everybody in that classroom wanted to be in charge Great. of no man's land so they could blow stuff up. Yeah. So it was really like they really learned their history from those places. And I think we see more of that, this kind of gamification of education, if you yeah. want, in terms of how we're teaching kids. And how to keep kids' interest is something of a knack for Trina after a successful career in TV and film particularly in the creation of interactive multimedia series for children. And when her own kids came along, their interest in gaming piqued hers. A smart choice, it seems. The the statistics for uh, gaming in Ireland, it's worth about 180 billion euro worldwide, bigger than the combined global revenue for film and music. I just find that astounding. Two and a half billion people playing uh, video games on the planet. Over two million people in Ireland. Yes. Two million. Two million. It's a staggering figure. It's like 200 million euro or something we spend a year on games. It's extraordinary. It's 240 million we spend in Ireland, which is 
so what is the what is the attraction? What, is, what like obviously I'm missing out because I'm 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 too old now. But what what is it that keeps drawing people? Is it just the jeopardy? Is it the is it storytelling? Let's go back to I that. I think it's it's partly if you look at something that was really popular during initial lockdown and stuff. It was a Nintendo Switch, and it was yeah. Um, they it it's kind of like a sense of control when the world was going out of control. You had this little pocket of the world that you could actually yeah. control, and for kids in particular, like it's kind of that sense of connection that they had when they couldn't meet out and play normally but they could be on roadblocks and they mm. could see their friends there and meet there and play games or create games it was that option too of you're not just a player you're also a creator I was I was uh, flabbergasted when I was caught over to my brother and his his my godson and nephew was playing one of these and he was chatting away I said who are you talking to and he said oh my three friends I said, well, they're not here like I, like I was like the old man River and he said no and he was explaining I said give me those and I went on the headphones and I could see his mates were going who's you know I was acting the maggot but I was I was fascinated by it um, and how as you say it, how you can be connected and disconnected physically but connected technologically I mean that, that is, blows my um, mind is amazing and I think the things to remember for parents is there's a lot of resources like Webwise and stuff which will tell you you know it should be people you know in real life you shouldn't just randomly accept friend requests or play with people you don't yeah. know and that's great but it's also it's about a level playing field there's a really great guy in Kildare called the Disabled Gamer who yeah. has a gaming channel and for him that thing of putting his videos online of him playing games suddenly he was the guy who was a gamer and play games in the school, not the kid in the wheelchair. Isn't that and that is amazing. Yeah, that's really nice. I like to hear about that. And um, uh, you're, you know, people are talking about a lot The Last of Us, yes. which is now a TV series. I watched the first, uh, but it's kind of a bit zombie-ish now for me, but um, it was good and it's doing great business. A uh, text says, you need to start watching The Last of Us. Last week's episode <laughs> has already been described by The Guardian's TV columnist as the best TV episode of 2023. It is a wonderful standalone episode which you could watch independently. So I'm, I'm, I'm tempted. Have you watched it? Are you watching? I've watched it. I've watched the first two Do you episodes, like it? and yes, and there are elements of it. It like feels it. qualified, your yes. It is definitely yes because there are parts of it where you feel like you're, you the tension is almost R- that okay. above of a video game. But also, I'll say to you, Ryan, it is a journeyman. It's an odyssey. It's an epic journey. It's like you know Homer's Odysseus. This is a guy with a quest who's trying to get through the end and going through a terrifying landscape. The ultimate it's storytelling. Story. And as, it's like, as you say, Donkey Kong, uh, you're just overcoming obstacles to try and get to the end, isn't that? Yes, yeah, storytelling. That's, that's a great observation. And there's that Donkey Kong Homer crossover. I mean, perhaps Odysseus would have had an easier journey if he'd been able to climb and throw a load of barrels. But what's next for Trina with her uncanny ability to jump between media? I yeah I wrote a book like mental yeah. um but um I really wanted to write I've wanted to write for so long and then I was in lockdown like everybody else and it was you know it was one of those things I I wanted to write suddenly I had the time to write and I just went for it and then I wrote it and I have an amazing agent called Marion Gunn O'Connor and I yeah. sent it to her and then I just kind of forgot about yeah, and went off and did all these other things, and and eventually uh, she rang me and she went, so that book, and I went, oh yeah, that's great. Did people read it? That's so nice. And she was like, yeah, and it turned into a thing, and there was an auction, and Scholastic bought it, and they, here we are. Uh, here we are. Well, tell, tell us all about it. Um, it started with I was going to a lot of um gaming events for research for Gamer Mode, which was an RTE kids show, and. I started thinking, God, you know, this is a great setting for for a thriller or something because 
it's just drama. It's pure drama for in particular, but pre-pandemic um, gaming events were, you know, stadium arenas. Yeah. 15,000 people screaming, watching these these screens and like teams with, you know, like a gig. 16 year olds. Yeah. It was amazing. Mm. And I started thinking, wow, what if you had a company that's almost too big to fail and they have this employee and she discovers that they're doing something really morally dodgy? And what if they kill her to shut her up? And what if her only family then comes and infiltrates to try and find a way to find out what happened to her and to get revenge? Great. And it's combining all your interests because you like you like a good thriller. You're a Hitchcock fan, I understand. Yes. Uh, like myself. So you, you did, did that some of that come into your storytelling? And, and you also like my, one of my favorites. We share a lot of similar um, loves, including Roald Dahl and Tales of the Unexpected. I love. Love them. Yes. Hugely underrated. Uh, but this, so you're in that world. Is that where you tapped? Did you tap these places? I, I, I tapped into that world and I started writing. And then um, I was, I started writing. I went back to college. I did a degree in, in creative writing. So I was tapping into that as well. Yeah. And also the lovely Louise O'Neill was my mentor when I was writing the books. So she was great. And she gives you a, 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 she a handsome quote and on the back. And she texted this morning too, oh, which oh, is amazing. Oh, even better. better. Wishing you luck, I hope. <laughs> yes. Uh, a gripping, exciting, a story for our time, she says this morning so that's that's she uh, is amazing great good honor and good on you for getting that uh, on the on the cover of the book in time for publication which is terrific um your favorite book of all time among them is helen keller keller's teacher by margaret davidson yes why that book um that book was something i read when i was a kid and it was a really important book for me because my sister was born prof- she was nonverbal. she was profoundly autistic and, and what's her name uh keelan keelan campbell and she that book was kind of like an insight into how we communicate without words, you know, the whole process of learning sign language and how you can tap into someone's inner inner world and how do you communicate. And I think is that something that I, a lot of people that I've worked with over the years have had that kind of similar background. We were all struggling to find ways to communicate through visual images or things that are other other things. And yeah, it, it was changed me. It really opened me up into looking inside her world and, and what she was doing. Because we we did something recently on the Late Late Show about love, which is a sort of sign language for people who are nonverbal. And it's becoming increasingly popular to, so that people can communicate. In your case, with with uh, Keelan, I don't know what what is she, what what age is she now? Is she she passed away? Oh, I did not know. That. No, I'm so sorry. It's perfectly okay. She passed away when I was in my twenties. She was she she died a couple of years after. She must have been my mom. F- very young. She? Yeah, she was. She had um she had heart issues as well, and it was very sudden. But um she really she really thought us a lot about ourselves. I think you know people yeah. often say that you know having someone in the family is like your who's disabled, you're, you're teaching them. But really, she was a person who taught me a lot about mm. the world around and how we communicate and how we understand people. And you, you said she passed away after your mum. Is that what you... Yeah. Did she predecease? Yeah. Okay. Um, and that's... Uh, so you, that's been a tough old road for you all the same. And I'm, I presume that only enriches who you are as a person in terms of understanding and empathy. And that probably spills into writing and life and parenthood or what have you. Maybe it, I think it does. And and maybe that's the thing that you have to go through life to really write about it. You have yeah. to have something that you want to say and an experience. And, and I was lucky enough to have a lot of people around me who were really supportive and great and in terms of processing yeah. that kind of grief. So yeah. Today's a big day for you then. Because yeah. you're probably thinking of the, <laughs> I know your father did, passed away not too long ago and, and you were close and um, your mum and Keelan and 
Yeah, I'm sure you'd love them to be here today to I think they are somewhere. Day. You know, they're probably yeah. watching and giggling and laughing and kind of going, oh my God, I can't believe she's like saying all of this about us in the national radio. But anyway. anyway. Um, well, it's yes. a celebration and uh, it's nice to remember them too because I'm sure they were very important people in your life. Absolutely. And your kids are just embarrassed of you um, because they're at that age now. Where Absolutely. You're, you're, totally. If you're going to leave us to the school, leave us around the corner so they can see you. Oh, worse. You're, like, you're, I you're think I've, I've been asked to go in and talk to them in their school and it's kind of like, Oh, no, no, not my please. class, yeah. not my class. Oh, I, I understand that world. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're never, says Adrian in Bray, never too old to play console games. I'm 52 and the number of people over 40 playing is staggering. Um, if I was to play one game, what would you what would you think, Triona? I would say, given your love of history, maybe Civ 6 is a great one. Civ for 6. Civ 6. Okay. But like, basically start start small. You okay. Know, tricky Towers, which is kind of like, you know, stacking things and blocks and, and very much a mind game. Or else um, Mario Kart racing is just super fun, particularly if you've got kids and you're all trying to beat each other. And you can go, they have a slow version too. You start for, slow for, and, and for, you build up. For, for simple people like me. Well, looking and at and me too. Because yeah. like, we all get beaten by our kids and that's... <laughs> just how we, we, we deal with these things. Uh, your your book, Congratulations, A Game of Life or Death is out now. It's by Triona Campbell, who has been our guest this morning. We're delighted to talk to you. And thanks thank for, you. for telling us all about yourself. And um, really, in, in, I, I learned a lot today. So thank you for your time. Thank you very all much. All right. And from joyfully destroying your kids with power-ups as you fly around the course on Mario Kart to the threat of a darker side of technology. Big Brother could soon be watching us. And while he wipes down his lenses in preparation, a bill has come before the Oireachtas relating to body cameras for the Gardaí and the possible introduction of facial recognition technology. Debating the issues on Today with Claire Byrne were Barrister and Fine Gael Senator Barry Ward and Labour TD Aon O'Reardon, who began. We have a body cam, if you like, Bill, in front of the Oireachtas at the moment. We was debated uh, yesterday in the House about, you know, giving Gardaí the, the, the facility to have body cameras uh, on their person and, and to record interactions with, with members of the public. And we're in support of that. But in that conversation, um, the Minister suggested that we will, as part of that legislative process, bring in facial recognition technology as well. So this is a major change that's been shoehorned into this stage of a legislative process, which isn't appropriate. So it it wasn't given pre-legislative scrutiny. Uh, we, we, it'll be brought in by means of, a, of an amendment at committee stage. So if we're going to make this rather large change to how the dynamic of the guards works with, with the public uh, and how they investigate criminality, then we really should be giving it an awful lot more uh, investigation and scrutiny. Now, mm. internationally, there have been a lot of difficulty with facial recognition technology. There's quite a number of jurisdictions internationally who are turning their face away from it. San Francisco, for example, have banned it. Um, the Met in the UK were claiming that there's a Seventy percent success rate when it came to the use of facial recognition technology. But when they actually had a, an academic from the University of Essex, a man called Pete Fussy, possibly very well named, but anyway, he did a, an investigation uh, within uh, the Met and they discovered that the success rate was low, much lower, around nineteen percent. So, allied to all that. We understand from the ICCL that the EU are currently drafting legislation to prohibit the use of facial recognition, recognition technology across the EU. So why is the Irish government shoehorning in a piece of questionable legislation 
into the committee stage of, of a legislative process when in a very short period of time we could have an overarching uh, legislation from the EU which will ban this use anyway. Let's find the body out cam what legisla- Barry the body Ward cam says legislation about is, that. Is, yeah. is, is enough for the moment for us to get our heads around and get and used to. And it's a to. separate issue but you're saying this has been loaded well, on the to the bill, back of it. Um, I know, I know. It's, uh, I, I take your point but Barry Ward, why is the government doing this now? Why not wait to see what the EU has to say about this? I mean, you, you can't deny that it's controversial. No, I don't deny it's controversial and so it should be and I have great respect for the Irish Council for Civil Liberties and what they've said about this. I understand their concerns but I think it's also important to separate some of what Aon has said from what that technology is likely to be used for in this jurisdiction. So he's spoken about the EU. I, I don't accept that the EU is planning to ban facial recognition technology. What they are doing is regulating it very tightly, which is appropriate. I think why not wait for that process to happen? Well, because the, the bill going through now, and this is the, impo- the appropriate place to put it. Now, Aon is right, it's not in the bill yet, but it has been flagged for some time that it's going to be in the bill. It's been part of a discussion around the future of policing generally here and, and the subject of reports. But I think it's important to see this not as a, a I suppose, this is, is, is a data sifting tool, essentially. So at the moment, this work is being done by individual Gardaí. So if you have, for example, hours of CCTV of a particular location and you want to establish that a particular person was or wasn't there. It currently requires a detective or a guard to sit down and spend hours carefully going through that CCTV to see if he or she can see the person or not see the person as the case may be. Part of what this technology can be used for is to sift through that. It's much like sitting down at your computer and opening up a Word document and using Control F. It's similar technology uh, and that's what it's planned to be used for. It's not the case, for example, that we anticipate that guards were going to be walking around with these new body cams, which are an important legislative instrument. It's not suggested that that's going to have a buzz and tell the guard, oh, there's Claire Byrne, we have a warrant out for her arrest, go and nab her. That's not the way it's going to work at all. So it's absolutely appropriate that there should be very strict controls and important safeguards in place. It's not the case, however, that this is going to be the big brother that some people anticipate. Sorry, uh, sorry, Claire. The Garda Commissioner has ex- said exactly that. He said that there would be uh, facial recognition technology. In, 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 it is his expectation that there would be facial recognition technology uh, in, in the body cams as worn by Angarda Shiakana. He yeah, has stated that. There, there, is a, there are two different ways in which this can be used. My understanding of what the guards are saying is that footage taken from Garda body cams will be can be treated with artificial uh, facial recognition technology after the fact. It's not going to be real-time use the way that's being suggested. And what the EU is saying, for example, is that that is arguably not an appropriate use and that there will be very limited circumstances where you could use this in real time. Examples of that would be terrorist attacks, a missing child with an urgent, uh, uh, an urgent window to, to save the child. They are the kind of limited circumstances they're talking about where real-time facial, facial recognition technology could be used in actual fact the vast majority of occasions which are in, is envisaged to be used here is after the fact sifting through large volumes What have you that. to say about that claim as Aon has explained to us and we know that they've said in San Francisco no thanks very much that it's disproportionately discriminatory against those of certain ethnic backgrounds. Yeah that's definitely a risk and that's all stuff that needs to be dealt with in the algorithms that are put into it. It's absolutely a concern about it uh, but these are not things that should say we should never use facial recognition technology. And by the way, the context in which other jurisdictions are saying they won't use it and the success rates that Aon has referred to in relation to the Met are much more in the context of real-time use rather than data processing use, which is what we're primarily talking about in this jurisdiction. But 
people are right to be concerned about that and we have to ensure that there are safeguards first of all in terms of how it's used but also important protocols that are put in place in terms of the algorithms that are used but just to explain what this technology does it, it identifies particular features and relative features so it would be the distance between your eyes the distance between your nose and your mouth or your eyes and the end of your nose and that and the, the shape of your face that's the kind of, of they're the metrics that it uses to assess someone so yes it is, it is correct that that can sometimes be um, it, particularly in the context of, of different ethnicities that can be a problem but protocols can be put in place to safeguard against that and that all has yet to come but it's really important that we focus on it too. Yeah and, and Aon, you made this point as well that it, I think you said 70% what you said in the doll was 80% of mm. the cases that have used facial recognition technology in parts of the UK yeah, no, the have found it to be defective. Yeah the metric claiming a 70% success rate but when, when the investigation took place it, it turned out that 80% of the cases uh, were, were the evidence was, was so your concerns or, around this are about wrongful arrests. Well, uh, well, absolutely. And look, let's let's be clear here. The, the body cam. I know you say it's a separate debate, but it's the same bill, and and, and it's in the same area. The body cam uh, introduction to Angarachi O'Connor is a major change. It's a major change, and it's going to need. Uh, very rigorous regulation around it because we don't want a situation where uh, interactions between Angarda Siakana and members of the public uh, end up being circulated as has happened in the past with CCTV footage of, of, of certain vulnerable individuals. Okay, We want to be very clear about how this this new methodology and this new uh, defence for the guards and for and for the member of the public is going to be utilised. Okay, So it's, it's, a, it's a big dynamic shift. However, what we're doing now is taking a, a, a sort of a, a protocol that's, that's been dismissed in parts of, uh, of the world, uh, has, has been banned in parts of the world and, and has been sort of totally undermined, uh, as we said, in the, in the Met experience, shoehorning it into, our, into this piece of legislation at committee stage at the same time as not waiting for what, do you, what the EU's regulations around this are going to be. Okay, let's so look what, what, can we look so at some of what the Minister said last yeah. night, his, his arguments for using this. He says a striking example would be Gardaí working in combating child sexual abuse online. So Minister Harris said, Gardaí currently they're forced to review what could be hundreds of thousands of the most harrowing images or footage of these crimes. And he says that this technology will allow them to use the tool in order to quickly identify both victims and perpetrators. Now, surely that's an advantage you can't argue against. Oh, look, we, we are not... Uh, in any way arguing against advances in technology. We're not in any way arguing against uh, stamping down on criminality and particularly that type of, of, of criminality. What we are saying though is that when we have a major shift in the in, 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 in policing, uh, in that interaction between Angara Siakana and the public in tackling crime, that we want to make sure that these tools are effective and, uh, and used properly and have proper uh, international sort of um, evidence behind them that we can learn from uh, the other jurisdictions who have gotten this wrong. And we need to do this in a proper way. This hasn't gotten pre-legislative scrutiny. It's being shoehorned into a bill at committee stage mm-hmm. and we still don't know what the EU so, are going to say. So the point is, yeah. the point is clear that, look, if we get this wrong, we could get this very wrong. And what happens if you have yeah, a situation where... but you're, you're where compelling Gardaí then to sit down and watch hundreds of hours of CCTV when they could circumvent that process by using facial recognition technology and identify a perpetrator in seconds. And what happens if the situation in Ireland happens as happened in the Met, where 80% of what was discovered was wrong? 
what happens if it's, that happens? Still, and what happens? Hold, still, on, hold, on, hold on, hold on, What happens matters. if we have a situation that happened in San Francisco? Well, I'll answer the question. Where they were so, you, they found it to be so problematic that they're not continuing with it. And what happens? All right, but just let me answer that Hold question. on, hold on, Claire. I, I, I need to finish. What happens if, in, in a number of months' time, the EU bring in regulations which totally undermines the legislation that we're about to pass? What happens then? Well, the first thing is that even if the software is ineffective in identifying someone correctly, it still short circuits an awful lot of guarded time spent sitting in front of a screen watching CCTV. But it's important to realise that, as I said at the beginning, this is a data sifting, a data treatment tool rather than a, than, than anything else. So it is helping Gardaí to reduce the number of, of things that they have to look at. But whatever happens, once the thing is identified, let's say, um, John Murphy as being a p- potential victim or perpetrator in a video or accused or whatever it is, it's still up to the guard to satisfy himself or herself that that is a correct identification. All this facial recognition software does is bring particular moments to the attention of the guard. Yeah, but surely the point is that in the jurisdictions that Aon mentioned, the risk was considered to be too great and that's why they said we're not using this. And, the t- and if you take the American jurisdiction there are other massive problems with their criminal justice system that don't exist here. So for example, evidentially if something is to go to court, a guard must satisfy himself or herself that the identification is correct. When it goes to court, that is merely a piece of evidence. It's still up to a jury to satisfy itself that that is the correct identification. And that happens already. But you already have a situation where a guard will say, well, that's Claire Byrne that I see in the CCTV. And they will go into court and go, I recognise Claire Byrne. I know her. I know the way she walks. I know the way she bobs her head, whatever it is. And the jury takes that evidence and either rejects or accepts it. So the process is still there that doesn't exist in the same way in California, for example. But all of the point around this is, and all it's right, like it may not work. But the reality is what we're doing is we're putting in place a mechanism that can help Gardaí. And if it doesn't work, it will be discontinued. But it has worked in lots of jurisdictions. And the problems that Aon is referring to, as I understand it, primarily relate to real-time use, which is not what we're talking about here. If you're not sure whether it's going to work or not, why legislate for it? Because you can't do it at all if you don't legislate for it. So what we're doing is, we're, and there will be a pilot programme, it'll have to be <laughs> trialled and it'll have to be under the supervision in terms of the algorithms and the protocols and all this. All of that has yet to come. And it'll ha- the first step is to put it on a legislative footing and that's and it's only then that we can start to try it and see that okay. it does work and as I say it has worked in lots of places. Can we look for the look at the Irish Council for Civil Liberties concern saying that facial recognition technology has the capacity to identify and track people everywhere they go undermining the right to privacy and data protection. Yeah, and they're right about that. But that's why you bring in protocols to protect people. So you restrict its use in certain form, fora or certain ways but the first purpose of this technology is as a data processing tool. It's to help Gardaí sift through material that is vast. And one of the things in, in criminal cases in recent years that has happened is the uh, the amount of data that comes into play in ordinary prosecutions is enormous. If you download your phone, for example, that phone will occupy, the, the information in your phone will occupy tens of thousands of pages of data. And the reality is it's not reasonable or feasible to expect Gardaí to be able to parse all that data. Okay, so, so okay. Aon, Claire, it's a data processing Claire, tool. What we're, what we're working off is the word of the Minister in, on the record in the Dáil yesterday at, at a, a second stage. And we're working off what Barry Ward is saying on the radio today. And the guard, the commissioner, the guard, the commissioner and his staff, who, according to the minister, have made a compelling case for the use of this technology. We don't have anything in legislation. We don't. We we are not debating something that is actually written down in in legislative form. We all of these safeguards that Gary's, that Barry's talking about, and the minister's talking about, we haven't seen. We haven't seen the legislation. We haven't seen the proposals. We haven't seen the the, the safeguards. We haven't seen the EU law. 
none of these we have none of this happened in pre-legislative scrutiny where you're supposed to bring in people such as the Garda Commissioner or, or the ICCL or anybody else who has some international experience in this and have a, and have a chat about it. So we're actually not we're actually debating something that we haven't seen in terms of the legislation the legislation or the regulation around it. It sounds to me though from what you've and said today way, that way, even if you way, had can I just ask you the question if you, well, even if, if you had work, all work. of that pre-legislative scrutiny and all of those people coming before you explaining what they were going to do what the processes are and what the limitations are that you still wouldn't be in favour of this technology that's not true. being used. That's, no, that's not, that's not true because in the body cam situation, we had a robust discussion at the, at the Labour Parliamentary Party. There are many of us who have you know, reluctance around the body cam situation because of the nature of the intrusion of the public. But on balance, we felt that the Guardi needed more support. There is 650 less Guardi than there was three years ago. So there's, there's more than we need just in terms of, of body cams. But certainly... On balance, we felt that the protection for the guard uh, and the recording of certain instances was going to be an important uh, tool for them to, to go about to go about the, the, the way. And 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 those um, arguments made at committee are ones that actually do sway politicians one way or the other. And if we were to have this pre-legislative scrutiny on this issue, maybe we would come to to, to a formulation uh, will, of a position. But it will follow the full legislative hold process. Hold on, hold on. Well, you see, well, no, we're not. Hold but on, hold on. Please, on, don't, on, please don't interrupt in me. Fact, please you had a good run at it now, but no, what you're no, talking no, about will never be in the bill. The protocols will never be written. We haven't seen the bill. No, because nobody ever writes these protocols. You're talking about very technical, technological well, protocols and algorithms. Well, we're going to need them if it's going to work. Because no, I'm sorry, can't just... Aon. What, no, you, what sorry, you do sorry. instead is you put in place a review process. You put it under an independent review no, committee or a judicial Claire, review, might... for example. That's the way to do it. You don't know. I don't know what the way the algorithm should be structured to make it right. And we couldn't. you could never put that into a bill. We can't work on that basis. It's such you a powerful have to tool. We can't work on the basis of... You can't put that into legislation. The other thing that will mean... Can I just ask, because we're we're coming to the end, I, just, I have what I think is an important question to ask here because this means, Barry, that you would need a database of images of people who are wanted for crime or who have committed a crime in the past. And you can understand how people would be concerned about how that database is going to be managed. Uh, yes and, and no. For starters, if you if I decide, for example, I'm looking for Barry Ward in, in 10 hours of CCTV footage, I take an image of Barry Ward, whether I have that from a database or from maybe uh, something that has come up in that investigation. Can yeah, be which different. is also a database. Uh, well, no, but the point I make so, is so, those databases... So database, they're going to not, exist, so how are they, they going to be They already exist, Claire. They already exist. Yeah, but so the Guardian already have so these So people databases. have concerns about how databases are managed mm-hmm. in this country and surely you will need to put the, the, the horse before the cart in this instance and make sure that those those processes are safe and robust before you introduce the technology. Well, there is already a substantial number of protocols, amended protocols in recent years to protect those databases. So the situations that Aon was talking about where CCTV has been played, a lot of those issues have been addressed. The point is not that we are going to, as part of this legislation, gather a huge new database of people who might be accused of crimes. That's not what's going to happen. The Guardian already have intelligence on potential right. people and that's what will be All used. right, we're going to have to leave that one there. But thank you both uh, very much. Barry Ward, Finnegal Senator and Labour TD, Aon Rhythm. We also heard heated debate and impassioned speeches in the Doyle last night regarding the Mother and Baby Institution's Payment Scheme Bill and the many failings as seen by the opposition, particularly the stipulation that survivors who spent less than six months in an institution be excluded from the scheme. On Morning Ireland, Onya Lawler was joined by Social Democrats TD Holly Carnes. But first, some excerpts from last night's discussion, starting with People Before Profit TD Richard Boyd Barrett. Minister, you know, I'm an adoptee, as you know. Uh, I was born in a mother and baby uh, home. I was in a couple of them, actually, because I was sent off to England to be ushered out of, you know, out of sight. 
child of a fallen woman, illegitimate child. Uh, that's how uh, mothers and the children were characterised. Uh, and then brought back. I don't even know how long I was in a mother and baby home. I don't know. And it's irrelevant. Whether you were one week, one day, six months, or two years, because the central crime that church and state committed was the primal wound of separating a mother from their child, which has, from the minute that it happens, a lifelong effect on mother and child. People before Prophet TD Richard Boyd Barrett. Children's Minister Roderick O'Gorman said many of those who'd spent shorter times in mother and baby homes were more focused on accessing their personal information. As I've said before, I fully understand there are survivors and there, there are survivors joining us today who aren't happy with the determinations made in terms of the ambush of, 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 of this scheme. Um, when we spoke to, 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 to survivors, when they gave their, their um, accounts of what they wanted to see in terms of the state response, as I've said before, that uh, each person's account, each person's recognition of what they want to see the state do is different. Many of those, particularly those who spend shorter times in these institutions, place their focus on the issue of information, on the fact that they've been denied their information for such a long period of time. Children's Minister Roderick O'Gorman and the debate adjourned without a vote due to time constraints. As I say, Holly Cairns, the Social Democrats TD for Cork South West and member of the Erechthus Children's Committee is with us in studio and this is an issue on which you've spoken uh, several times in the Doyle, Holly Cairns. Uh, that debate adjourned after running out of time. The government has a majority. The bill's going to become law, isn't it? Yeah, it's looking that way and we did have votes on particular amendments yesterday and they were lost by a small enough margin. Um, but what you can hear there is the minister essentially trying to defend the indefensible, you know, saying, well, people who spent less than six months in an institution actually just want their birth information. That's incorrect. He didn't say all, he said many. Many. But the minister actually carried out his own report called the Oak Report to establish from survivors what they thought redress should be based on. And he was praised for that consultation because engagement with survivors is something that they've been calling for. That report found that the single biggest factor they wanted redress to be based on was the separation of mother and child that Deputy Boyd Barrett articulated so well in the Dáil yesterday. That was the main thing, that separation, the forced family separation. So the minister did that report ignored that finding, scrolled down the list further to time spent in an institution and decided to run with that. He's been asked repeatedly for more than half a year now, and I don't know how many times yesterday, why don't you get a payment if you spent less than six months in an institution? And he's yet to explain that. He keeps just saying, well, actually, we're giving people their birth information and we've gone about the burials bill. But ultimately, giving people their birth information is the absolute bare minimum. We've all been entitled to our birth information in this country forever. Only adopted people have not. So he's announced that with great fanfare, but it's not like that's some kind of standout thing that he's doing for people. And that used constantly as an excuse for this. And it's not just the Oak Report that said it should be based on forced family separation. UN experts have come out and said this redress scheme is a disgrace, it's discriminatory. Um, as have 
um, I think it was 32 experts in the field in Ireland wrote to the Minister to explain that the first six months of your life is crucial. They're talking to the Minister for Children who doesn't seem to have any awareness about the importance of the first six months of a child's life and many TDs said, oh I shouldn't have bothered spending the first taking maternity leave for example with my child if it had absolutely no impact on them for the rest of their life. And ultimately this comes down to a decision based on money. That has to be it. You know, they've decided they don't want to to pay out more. And it's kind of a routine, I think. Do you have any idea of the kind of sums we're involved here if the 24,000 people uh, who are currently excluded from redress under this bill, if they were included? Well, so 40, 40% of survivors won't receive any kind of redress, so you'd presume that there would be a 40% increase. But when they announce it, you know, they keep, they keep saying, this is the biggest redress scheme ever announced by the state. And for one, it doesn't and say it a lot. Is, isn't it, it is. It doesn't say a lot about what we've given in terms of redress for the likes of the Magdalene Laundries or the industrial schools, you know, the fact that it's the biggest one. It's also one of the biggest disgraces in the country, so maybe it should be the biggest redress scheme. But... Just announcing that all the time, that's including the information campaign. All of those costs are included in it. That's not all going directly to survivors. And when you have to like, kind of zoom out and realise as well that this six-month thing, I thought that was a red herring at the beginning to distract all of us from the fact that we're talking about the worst human rights violations in the history of the state. Things like incarceration, forced labour, illegal vaccine trials on children and crucially forced family separation, taking a child away from its mother and illegal adoption. And then you might get 3,000 or 5,000 euro. You would get multiples of that for, you know, whiplash claim for falling over on a pavement. So the entire scheme isn't proportionate to the magnitude of what happened. It's really kind of almost tokenism to say we acknowledge that this was wrong and that people deserve kind of some kind of compensation. And then to say, but only this number of you not people who spent less than six months. You couldn't make it up. And actually, it seems like kind of a routine in the state when we look at what's happening with um, the disabled people allowance previously and with nursing homes now, we'd see it with cervical check, with all of these things. It's in the first instance, find a vulnerable group of people and shaft them. Then more than put it under the carpet, desperately try to cover it up. Then make people fight and fight and fight to get the bare minimum in terms of justice. Then give them a payoff. You say the bill will now probably become law despite all your your reservations and the reservations of other opposition TDs. Do you foresee legal challenges? Absolutely. And there was um, a solicitor who represents a lot of um, survivors on the airwaves last night saying that he already has inquiries. I've heard that from uh, survivors themselves as well. And, you know, it's not really a surprise because it's in breach of so many different human rights laws like you quite frankly, couldn't make this situation up. And yeah, I think the, the minister will live to regret this decision. I don't think the government realise how opposed to this the general public are, that it is really going down on the wrong side of history. We're far past a point of treating people like that and it continues to be the case. And people might say, when you know it's going to pass, why is there still a campaign on this? You, you mentioned that the vote didn't go ahead last night. We have another week now to campaign on this. And yes, it can feel sometimes like, what is the point? The vote's going to go through. All the government reps just vote with the whip all the time. But Well, they are the majority. They That's, are the majority. Yeah. But like we saw... Um, just before Christmas, they actually stopped a, a, a debate and said, we'll actually revisit this. So I don't think the general public realise how much it helps when you get in touch with your TD. People really, like they act on what the public okay. wants, not me. So I'd encourage people to get onto their TDs and say, we do not accept this. People deserve better. Holly Carnes, Social Democrat TD and member of the Children's Committee on Morning Ireland. And that's where I'll finish today. 
This edition of Playback Daily was written and compiled by me, Gemma Craddock. Thanks for listening. <laughs>